Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Jimmy Emmons and Lauren Steinlogge have both built dynamic, profitable no-till operations, but the challenges they face are very different. Jimmy no-tills cash crops and raises livestock in hot, dry western Oklahoma, while Lauren uses a variety of creative planting systems to no-till several different crops in a veritable stew of soil types in eastern Iowa. For this No-Till Farmer podcast, Jimmy and Lauren were joined by moderator Rick Clark at the 2022 National No-Tillage Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, to share the management tactics they've relied on to achieve no-till success in such differing climates, including how they've incorporated cover crops, managed water infiltration issues, and how they're preparing their operations for the future. First, we'll get some background from Jimmy and Lauren, and then Rick will join in with some questions of his own and from the conference attendees. Jimmy Emmons from Northwest Oklahoma. I live about 40 miles below the panhandle of Oklahoma and about 35 miles in from the state of Texas. Uh, my great granddad brought my granddad and uh, two other brothers and two uh, sisters up in 1926. And uh, so he saw the place that we call the home place in 1926 and he said, Dad, this is where I want to stay. And uh, We've been there ever since, and I still, my wife Ginger and I uh, still own and operate that farm as well as, as a few others around that, that connect to it. We uh, used to raise just wheat and some cotton and alfalfa. Uh, it was very traditional farming, heavy tillage. That's what granddad uh, knew, and even though he couldn't plow all the farm uh, early on because he just too many acres to get over with the team, uh, then later, you know, more horsepower, we started farming everything. Then uh, I came along and uh, we started to farm in more and bigger. And in about 1995, I met Dr. Dwayne Beck, big inspiration, helped us start getting no-tilling. And then we'd done that for a few years. And I was still on the, the mindset of clean and not enough residue. And so it wasn't working very good. Lots of pressure from granddad and dad because uh, that, that's not the way to do it. Then uh, I lost both of them in, within a year. And, uh, you know, then the game pressure's on. You know, do I stay the course or do I fall back in the rut and do what I've always done? Uh, I chose to stay the course. And uh, then in 2010, I met David Brandt, and uh, he inspired me more to start cover crops in western Oklahoma. And, a 20 inch rainfall, give or take 20 inches. Uh, and literally that's the way it is. <clears throat> in 2000, and 
11, we had uh, 9.7 inches. In 2012, we had 7.3. And in 2014, we had 25.3 the month of May. So it's uh, been a long journey. Uh, in 2018, then, we had the big wildfire that consumed uh, 300,000 acres in our county. It burned half of our operation out. We lost two landlord homes. We lost one shop uh, and some equipment and some cattle. And uh, it's been quite a journey. But I've stayed the course. I'd like to tell everybody I like Texas Hold'em. I'm all in when I got a good hand, and I think I got a good hand with Regen Ag. And so that's kind of where I'm at. I guess I'm a fortunate man. I was born and raised in Northeast Iowa, God's country, more affectionately known as. Through my history, you know, I, my career really started changing when I was about six weeks old. My dad was burnt 65 or 75% over his body, pretty much was not supposed to farm after that. Technology has been a very big aspect of our farming operation and that as we've transitioned through the years. So when we get up here and start talking, I love talking technology and stuff like that. And that's been a backbone to what's gotten me where I'm at today. You know, I, I bought into the family farm, I believe it was in 1986 when I took my first note. We were a full dairy livestock operation. Through the years, shortly after that, I was hit by a semi. One thing led to another, I cannot be around livestock. So that's been some of the biggest curveballs in my life. I've never tried to let stuff like that get me down. I've always springboarded off a downturn and it's just kept pushing me forward. You know, as we started uh, having to take livestock away, I, I've always been an iron and steel guy. So I focus on fine tuning stuff, learning how to build it, customize it. That's what brought me to where I'm at today. You know, I've taken a job with Dawn Equipment full time now. I still farm, that's part of my basis. But last week I probably had the most fun I've had in a long time. I gotta go out in Mississippi and get down one-on-one -on -one with farmers. That's what I really enjoy when you sit there and start taking time, learning what's going wrong, how to help guys figure it out. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, and again, we want this to be as interactive as possible, but before we take a question from, from you folks, I wanna expand, you know, Lauren, you guys are 800 miles apart. How in the world can what you do pertain to what Jimmy does? Could you elaborate just a little bit more on that, please? Well, probably the biggest thing I see between us is the management styles. My biggest issue is excess moisture. And cold weather. And cold weather. I don't understand that. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's called lack of. But we often call each other and share ideals. You know, so when the, you go back to the basic core principles, the five principles. So it doesn't matter where we are those five principles always prevail. You know, now you bring forth the sixth principle, the context. Right. The biggest thing one of our peers told me once upon a time, and I want to interject that on the context aspect, do not let that become an excuse. Yeah. The, the thing about it is, is how you manage, uh, whether it's raining six inches or 60 inches, uh, it's all in the management. If, if I have to watch every drop, so I have to watch my uh, population on cover crops and, and as well as cash crops uh, also have to manage that that heat factor that we get in the summertime uh, we want water use efficiency in plants you know if we get in that wet year like in 2014 I can plant green like you do mm -hmm. I can plant green like Lauren does uh, but that's very very seldom uh, because water is uh, essential for us 
and we try to catch every raindrop where it falls and, and utilize that to the maximum. So Jimmy, with, with your arid environment, what's your elevation? About 2,300. 2,300 feet elevation, fairly arid environment. Are you planting uh, a cocktail of, a, of one or two species or are you planting cocktails with multiple species? We, we're multiple. Most of my summer mixes are 15 to 18, 20 uh, wave blends. Our cool seasons are anywhere from three to nine. So it kind of depends on our goals and our process. But once again, we got to manage that population if we're dry uh, in them summer mixes. We stay with the blend, we just might not plant as much. And if we got a little extra moisture and we have that opportunity to gain more, then and we'll up that rate on the go. For the cattle, what kind of feed, make sure that I have that right. diversity in there to have good quality feeds. So the, the cattle, and now we're getting in the goat business as well, uh, really complements uh, it gives the, the you, cash. It gives you exit plans if, if the rain doesn't come. You thought you were going to raise the corn crop, but now we got to move on. Right. Yeah. Now, Lauren, I'd like for you to elaborate a little bit. You're, you're very big into this relay. Explain what that is. You know, are you getting diversity with your cover crop packages? So, well, Jimmy brought up the relay, and one of the first things I thought of right away is go back to what Jimmy said there. The reason relay works for me, and probably not for him, is our moisture situation. Right. Traditionally, we would get a strong wet spell the end of June, or first part of June, somewhere in there, replenishes our water table. But uh, the essential of the relay cropping is we go in in the fall, plant a cereal crop, and then in the spring we'll come in and plant the soybeans. July, we'll go in and harvest the cereal crop, and then in the fall we harvest the soybeans. And I mean, some of the things we've learned over the years is just learning the maturities and stuff like that, and that's the networking in that. You know, I didn't invent relay cropping, but you know, 2013, I think, is when I met a guy named John Coots. You know, he, a guy out in Nebraska, Shane Graving, you know, they're doing it. It's essentially the same latitude as I'm at. Shane gave up on it because he doesn't get the moisture situation. John, he's thrived over the years, and, you know, he's kind of the inspiration for most guys doing it. But what we're really seeing now as we've started to build out the network, you know, once we started understanding the relay cropping, the companion cropping and all that becomes in. You know, but I pro probably should back up and tell you the way we got into relay cropping was pretty easy. You know, my cover crop experience did not start with cereal rye. I was all traditional corn on corn. We were feeding cattle, stuff like that. So my introduction about 2006, I think it was, we started looking at the earlier interseed V4, V5, or back then it was about V7, V8, everybody was talking, but the more we learned, we kept pushing that forward. As we built into that, we built the right tools, the right pieces, had them in place. As soon as I seen what John's doing, I'm like, we got the tools to do it. I can start doing it. You know, it was an easy transition. Once you start understanding the principles, you know, and that would fast forward to where we're at now. Now we're looking at our cover crops. When you talk diversity, we're starting to figure out how to turn our cover crops into cash crops. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody asks, how are we gonna pay, make cover crops pay? We can start making them cash crops I don't need the best crops when I start pulling two or three different species of crop off a farm every year. The same symbiotic relationship on the cover crops happens on our cash crops once we start figuring that out. You know, Derek Axton in Saskatchewan is one of my best friends right now. 
you know, I love talking to him and understanding what he's doing. Totally different environment. You think Jimmy's dry? Yeah. Derek, a good year's six inches. But I, I think the key thing, Lauren, is when you mentioned about how dry I am and relay's a bigger challenge, well, it can be, and if you do it wrong, it, it, it cannot work out. What I tried and was sesame, which sesame is a desert plant, does very well for us. If you can get sesame up, you can grow, grow in on hardly nothing and, and harvest a good crop. And so then I put a sweet clover crop in with that. And so it, the idea of that was to stay in the, in the lower canopy, just sit there over the summer and then over winter. And then after we harvest the sesame off, uh, then next spring, next summer, we'll harvest that, that clover crop. What I didn't count on, and this was double crop sesame uh, as well behind the barley crop, was that the sesame uh, done exceptionally well and canopied over and uh, was almost too much canopy for the, the clover to get established. Now, the, the game is still afoot, and, and we don't know yet how the, the, the clover's going to be. It's there. Uh, and we'll see how that does in the spring. So I'm not out of the game yet. I'm still in the game. Worst case scenario is uh, we don't have enough clover. It still generates nitrogen for us, and uh, we'll go to plan B, and we'll plant another crop in the spring there. So as, as we all learn this, even 800 miles apart, it's about how you adapt that to your local environment and your local climate and make that work. I want to carry on with the moisture management conversation there because I think that's the biggest critical thing that defines a lot of us. Original reason I got into some of the cover cropping aspect in that was moisture management. We're 100% pattern tiled in my area. Problem is, we, it was done back in the 70s, everything's too far apart. Well, I started looking into it and I had two options. I could start learning how to grow the moisture out more or spend a lot of money on tile. I'm a German, simple description, I guess. I'm frugal. Stubborn? Yeah. I'm gonna, if I can figure out a way not to spend money, that's the way we're going. You know, so minimum expense was cover crops. We started going that way. But now, as we keep talking about evolving, I've evolved to the point now, we've built our water holding capacity to the point where we can actually hold, you know, I've done studies where we actually show we can hold 50% moisture than my neighboring soil. We got the infiltration levels now. You know, this summer, a couple guys were out. We were in the 20-plus range on the infiltration. It goes back to where we're at now. Now we're sitting at a point. Okay. I'm starting to get the side hill seeps and all that going again. So what am I going to do? Am I going to go back and pattern tile everything? Or am I going to figure out how to push it to that next level and continue growing out more moisture? So that's why the relay cropping and that is coming to the forefront more and more. You know, I think a few people were shocked when I said I might not grow corn this year. I can turn a profit that will blow 250 bushel an acre corn away with a relay crop. I'm kind of getting locked into a little bit of a rotation glitch right now. Yeah. But I know it's a stepping stool right now, so I'm not going to get hooked on that specific rotation. Lauren, let's go back to this relay. You, you went through it pretty quick. What does your planner look like? or your drill look like in the fall when you're establishing the, the cereal rye or the, the cereal grain, whatever it is. When we started out, we were pretty simple. I took a drill, I swipped, you know, kind of the defining moment for the interseed and the relay cropping was 
when I took a drill and started flip-flopping the rows around. I think that was like 2013-14. All of a sudden, we had things that fit. So we run, you know, we, granted we've upgraded drills and all that now, but we built a drill out of the duo seed drill units that uh, were set up on 822s, basically a 30-inch center row. We'll go in there, twin row our cover crops right now. You know, we went the full gamut. You know, I started out high rate, and then I heard everybody talk, oh, we can lower rates and that. Well, after this year, I'm not gonna lower rates again because we've got some pretty good data that shows a good standard cereal rye improves our bean yield. Yeah. So, right. yes, I'm going for bean yield, but I'm also going for maximum cereal rye. So, you know, that brings us to spring. We've taken, you know, we've used to use the same drill to put the soybeans in. When we went to food grade beans and that, I needed to start figuring out how to meter them beans better. So, again, I'm frugal. A cheap cyclo planter was out there. Bought a shifting hitch. We switched that over. We were planting a relay crop with a $3,500 planter. So, so now your tractor's running and not, not driving on the cereal rye. Correct. And you're now planting in the middles with yes. peanut because you've shifted the hitch on the... On yes. The and that... The, to keep progressing. This year, we were supposed to get to change gears. I've been controlled traffic since, I think 2009 is when we officially were controlled traffic. So all my tram lines are in the same row, but this year I was gonna kind of break that tradition and I was gonna, I bought a tractor just for the relay planter that we're gonna have on 90 inch centers now. Mm -hmm. So now I no longer need the shifting hitch. When you start doing some of the stuff we're doing, programming the GPS and that really gets entertaining when you start right. dealing offsets and that. So. We're constantly looking at improving on all that. Right. Then by the, now we'll talk the harvest portion of the relay a little bit. Originally I got John Coots's blocker guards, which is basically a lifter guard that he made that pushes the soybean down so we can harvest the rye. That so, works so pretty we're, good. We're right around July, the first week in July. Traditionally for me in Northern Iowa, we're probably in that July 20th. I used to say was the earliest to ever harvest to dry. Mother Nature threw us a curveball this year, and we were 4th of July, I think, is when we started cutting rye this year. So typically, what are these, what growth stage are these, these soybeans in at this point, uh, typically? That's the hard part to define, because every year is going to be different. Well, the biggest thing we've learned over the years is the maturity of soybean. I mean, I'm in northern Iowa, 43 degree north latitude, so when I tell people this year I had 3.4 to 3.9 beans, that kind of scares a few people. Yeah. But what yeah. we figured out is we've got to have that soybean in a vegetative state when we take the cereal crop off. Because mm -hmm. the best description is it hits a reset button yep. and that plant starts thinking, you gotta go to maturity. And if you're not, if you're into maturity already, it'll just say done, I'll guarantee you got 10 bushel beans. Mm -hmm. But you know, we, we've had 70, 80 bushel beans on the relay now, so. But these are things that you're constantly testing and that's why you've come to these conclusions. Yep. You collect data. Yep. And you look at that data. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm, we, we've actually collected data since I think 94 is some of the first data we collected. And I'm not anal about it, but I, I do sit down every year. You know, I don't care how accurate the yield monitor is calibrated. What I do care is it's consistent. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't care if this one was 250 bushel an acre to 10 bushel an acre. What I care is that difference. You know, I, my mindset used to be, how do I bring them lows up? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing when we really started understanding, you know, I no longer worry about variable rate planting or anything like that because our, our, our soils are just becoming consistent. Right. You gotta remember, I'm the guy that used to say, I farm 25 different soil types, 
in one pass. You've taken, you've got your system very stable. It's very stable right now. Okay, now I want you to back up just a little bit. What, is there a chemistry program involved with this at this point in time? We're getting very limited on the chemistry on the relay cropping. I mean, traditionally on a conventional field, I will generally, if I see fall, you know, winter annuals, I'll go in and hit 24D in the fall. But then there's no herbicide until after the beans are out of the way. And the only herbicide at that point generally is if we have a wet year, we'll get some water grass or foxtail coming in. Generally, hardly any weeds at that point. Okay, so you've harvested off this cereal rye. Let's let's just say it was cereal rye, and you've you've laid the beans down so you're not cutting any of them off. Now you've opened this up for sunlight to come in and possibly evaporation to take place. So now what happens to your soybeans now? Well, and they're 30 inches apart, right? I'll, I'll back up to the actual harvest now. Yeah, we're running 30 inch soybeans on the relay, but I'll back up to the harvest. You know, we're blowing all the residue back out. Mm -hmm. We're just broadcasting the residue and stuff like that. So we've got a very good residue mat. Okay. But what I want to do is I want to finish up the conversation on the actual harvesting. We've evolved all the way. You know, we had uh, Coots's blocker guards, and then, I, you know, in our hills, I don't like running steel out in front of a cutter bar. So then we made, we just took a full section of drain tile, mm -hmm. slid it, slam it over your cutter bar, your yep. relay cropping. Yep. You know, but in the hills, you'll start beating them off about 50 acres in, they'll start going through the combine, no big deal. Slam on a new one, but then we made bolt-on ones. But now we've evolved all the way to the point where we're running a deer row crop head. Yeah. And that is the ultimate place to get, other than the fact it is very high maintenance. We've learned over the years, the less we can molest that soybean, the better. You know, the, the blockers are great, but the less damage you can do is the better. So any combine can, can you do this. It's nothing special. Yeah, well, the the, the, like John, he went and switched his track combine. He slid the rows out so that he's running on 150 inch centers. I'm getting old enough. I'm, I used to love moving wheels and all that. I'm getting lazy. So what we did on my head is I shifted the window in the feeder house. So the complete head is offset 15 inches now. Right. And right. where that comes in handy is when you do run multiple combines in different locations, we can just throw the head on the trailer and move. We'll get back to Jimmy Emmons, Lauren Steinlage, and Rick Clark in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now here's Jimmy, Lauren, and Rick one more time. Got a question from the audience, Jimmy. Let's go. Do you have you have irrigation on your farm? I have two pivots along the South Canadian River. Uh, okay. It's about 40 foot to water. Okay. Do you have you been monitoring the amount? I'm sure you have to monitor the amount of water that you're pulling out of that that water source. Have you seen your water consumption go up or down with this 
this uh, regenerative styling that you're now that you've now incorporated. So ten years ago, our water infiltration rates were half inch an hour on our farm under the pivots. The so water we, infiltration, that's the amount of the water speed the water can go into the profile. Yep. And so it was a, a problem about a half inch is what we could put on per pass. Because it'd and, run off. Yep. And so the, then you just turn into a water cooler uh, system out there. Yeah. And uh, so last year we measured and we're about eight to 12 inches an hour. We run about 10 average now. So when we rain, get a big rain event, four, five, six inches, we can actually take all that in. So my irrigation now is just turned into supplemental yeah. in the dry periods. There's a lot of years that we don't run the pivot hardly any, and then we're in a very dry period right now. And so we're stepping that up. But we also gotta be careful with our water because it's high salt. And so we gotta watch how much we put out. We really like to water before rain. And, and people say, well, that's kind of dumb. If it's gonna rain, why you, but we can also move that salt on through. Yeah. We fill our profile completely full, then we're good for quite a while. But you see, what, what you said there that's so important here is by increasing your water infiltration rates, when you do get that storm that comes through, you've captured all of that moisture. Yeah. And it's in your profile now, available for either a cover crop growing or a cash crop growing. Yeah, that's, that's the new term I like to use with my neighbors when they say, you know, how much rain did you get last night? I said, all of it. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that's popular sometimes and sometimes it's not, but that, that's really the key uh, to this. When I started this, everyone told me, said, Jimmy, you can't grow cover crops here because we, we're limited. We can barely grow one crop. And you know what? They were right because we were shedding or running off three-fourths of our rainfall because our water infiltration, and, and I have neighbors that still are, uh, that can't get it figured out yet. Uh, but once we started taking in these big rain events, then we ha or any rain, we just take it all in, then we have that to use, and we fill the profile up. That has become the key because when I do get six, seven inches at a time, we take it in, then we can grow what we, what we want to grow. It's, it really seems, helped us out. Yeah, it seems that the weather events are becoming more drastic in shorter periods of time. Yeah. So whiplash gotta, weather. You got to be able to capture that. And I always think of Oklahoma as kind of a stormy place anyway. That's where the tornadoes originate usually. And yeah. Um, I, I could give you the Iowa rendition of that. That would be great. Because uh, as I said earlier, we're 100% pattern tile. And through some of the research we've been doing a lot, we do a lot of line monitoring. There's usually 40 of us in our county that are involved in that. They're monitoring 40 sites. Well, for two years, our tile lines never ran. Mm. Out of 40, we had four of the outlets they were monitoring, and out of 40, ours were the only ones that never ran. It'd take at least a two-inch rainy fall event for our tile line to run generally. So when you want to talk water holding capacity, you know, when we started understanding that, yeah. that's when I started, you know, Liz and Rick Haney were one of the first ones I called that time, you know, how, how do we measure something like that? You know, so the simple, for the guy, the take home for you today, if you ever want to start figuring out how to do that is, if you all have done a slate test, do the same setup, except for take a hundred grams of soil out of each ped, weigh it, put it on a coffee filter, soak it, bring it out, set it on a scale as soon as it quits dripping. You'll start mm -hmm. understanding your own soils pretty simply. I, I think that's where we really jive together. Uh, because we both understand that concept and 
I, I want the same thing. I want my water holding capacity good. I want to understand that. I want to know my water infiltration rates. Because if you don't know that, how can you manage for your crops? You know, that's right. uh, and so that's really been key. It works on 800 miles apart, whether it's in a heavy rainfall area or a low rainfall area. You have to know what your holding capacity is. Can I hold it? Can I fill it? Can I use it in, in the same way? So now, Jimmy, do you have a, is there a watershed that your farm, is any part of your farm in a watershed? Yeah. Okay. Is that watershed being monitored in any way by, by what your farm is contributing and the neighboring farms are contributing? So I also work for the Conservation Commission part-time as a mentoring, and we have a water monitoring uh, program in, in our water quality division. And I actually asked him to come out and, and do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I'm actually in three different watersheds okay. uh, uh, where I'm at, just the topography and stuff, the drainage uh, goes that way. And we're scattered out over about 20 some miles. Uh, so yes, and, and what they found is uh, there's nothing running out of our fields uh, because our water infiltrations are so high. Now, there may be a time when we get one of them 24-inch rains in one month that, that we're going to fill the profile up. I mean, we know that's going to happen. Sure. Uh, I'm not that, that, that boast to say I can take it all in because you're only going to take what, what the profile can hold. And so the key to that then is to have the residue, the mat on top of the ground that you filter that through that only things leaving is good, clean water. Yeah. Keep all the soil in place. All the soil, all the nutrients. Yeah. Uh, there, because once that aggregation is right, uh, you can do that. Right. Maybe you need tile. I'd like to pump water back in it like that. <laughs> now, Lauren, I, 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 you shocked me this summer when I was at your farm, and you said you had trout. Is that right? That was in, that was one of the proudest moments. In Iowa. Well, in the little bit of the backstory to that, we grew a crop on four inches of moisture this year. So the day the DNR was out there, we hadn't had rain for a couple months, and all the water in that creek was stagnant. There was no running water. We were doing fish surveys, and they were having over 100 trout and about 100 foot of stream. That's incredible. And if you understand trout, they like cool, clean water. So that's, as I alluded to yesterday, that, that's a pretty cool test, that, and you know, that's that, what I call a validation. No, that what you're doing is right. You know, and we're, we'll, we'll probably get on one of those sidetracks, and you know, I, I always like to bring up animal impact because I can't have it. But how many of us take credit for what we ever given? You know, I think Ray McCormick talked about it yesterday, the deer. It's a little bit of animal impact, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What about the turkey? How many of you guys got birds flying over your fields? Mm -hmm. You know, we all focus on the below ground livestock, is anybody focusing and putting a number on the above ground livestock, what that impact is? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I get a little frustrated just because I am, I am on the outside looking in on that front. But you got to start appreciating what we've got. The, na the native soil wasn't built by just buffalo and cows. So start thinking along some of that. What, you know, when you take notice of what actually is there. I'm, I'm still impressed that you raised a crop on how many inches? Four. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the positive learning aspect, I've been paying attention. Yeah. Actually, the true story behind that is I was, uh, we were out in a deal out in South Dakota last winter there. And I think, you know, anytime you stick your head out proud, 
Mother Nature's going to humble you. Oh, yeah. I made a comment out there in South Dakota. Yeah, my wet year, or my dry year is your guys' wet year. The, the driest year I ever remember was probably 20 inches of moisture. And, you know, to drop to four is pretty, you know, but it's also a validation of the system. You know, I, I was, I've been focusing a lot the last couple of years on our salt loads and stuff like that. And, you know, this year I was pretty adamant that I was going to change a few things up and hire things done. Well, one of the biggest things I wanted to do is I wanted to, any corn I was going to put nitrogen on, we were actually going to, I knew I was comfortable up front with the carryover and stuff like that. And I know through the Haney test what our soils can produce. So my full side dress load was going to go on pre-tassel or something like that. Well, with the weather we were having, all of a sudden I seen in the forecast we had a rain, but I, I was watching the neighbor's field. And this is on zero health field. Just the difference in the salt load. My field, my corn is just as green as it could be. Right to the row, the neighbor's is white. A couple days later, we seen that rain coming, so we kind of pulled the trigger early. Within three days, my corn was starting to get white. Got to start thinking on stuff like that. You know, how many of these problems we're trying to solve have we created ourselves? You know, it's the whole soil disturbance thing. Right. How many weed seeds do we actually plant ourselves? We create our own problems. Right. I'd like to go just a little different direction here. I'd like to talk about uh, legacy. Um, what, do you, what do you guys think about what you're building for the future and, 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 and what's that look like? Jimmy, I'd like for you to go first on this one. Yeah, when granddad came in 1926, uh, we sat right on the Great Western Cattle Trail. Uh, if you look at the maps, uh, the Chisholm Trail moved west as settlement moved west in Kansas. And um, uh, that trail is still evident through our rangeland. We tried to protect that. And, uh, you know, that, that land was very fertile. I have a journal of a drover that came up the trail in 1876, and he logged in every day from San Antonio, uh, Texas, to Ogallala, Nebraska. And so I knew by the streams and the rivers he was crossing where he was at in Oklahoma. And then he talked about the gypsum ravines before the Canadian Valley. And he was sitting on our upper land before uh, going into the watershed along the Canadian Valley. And he talked about the grass being taller than the horseback and how good that was. So it was very fertile uh, land. And then as, you know, the moldboard plow come along and, and, and when my granddad, that was a big tool that we used for years and my dad. Uh, and, and so we degraded that, not knowing not knowing, they were doing the best they could do, and I'm very proud of what they've done because I still have it. But my legacy is I won't want to get it back, uh, and we're working on that uh, right now. The last fall, NRCS came out, and uh, they've been with me for 10 years uh, in this project as a partner. And uh, when we dug soils, we done water infiltration rates under the pivot where we parked the pivot uh, for two hours and put on seven inches, and we took it all in. Uh, as we dug soil and trying to trace down how fast it went down, the soil scientist said, holy cow, Jimmy, this is unbelievable. I said, what are you talking about, Steve? And he said, you've changed your soil classification. I think we can reclassify that. And it's like, okay, you're going to have to explain that a little bit more. And uh, I've got some really great pictures as well that, uh, that, that shows that. 
And so that legacy part then starts really coming into play what we can do in, in, in 10 years. Now I'm 61 years old now and that's not very old anymore. It used to be what I considered was really old. It's, it's, it's not so old anymore. But you know, in, in truthfulness, about 20 more years, uh, things are gonna have to start changing for Jimmy. And so I wanna work real hard at, at just continually building that back. Uh, now my son, I didn't tell the whole story a while ago when I lost my dad and my granddad. My granddad was uh, in his 90s and uh, had a bad day and, and got on the interstate going the wrong way and uh, uh, had a bad wreck and, and didn't make it. My dad at that time was uh, two and a half years into cancer and, uh, and shortly after we lost granddad, I lost dad as well. Uh, and, and really the, the problem with, with dad was they, at, in them times, and that was, uh, like I said, in 1996, uh, the radiation that they had given him uh, in his mouth, they, they missed it. And, and he had radiation poisoning in, in his jawbone. It's kind of gross, so I don't want to talk about much. But anyhow, uh, my son, uh, Bo, then became very uh, interested in uh, trying to see that that didn't happen. So he became a radiation therapist uh, in school, uh, went to practicing uh, in Texas, and then moved back to Oklahoma a year and a half later. Now he's the director of the Cancer uh, Center and Radiation Department there at Mercy Hospital. Wow. And so uh, the reality is, uh, Bo's bought land next to the home place and bought his uh, grandmother's place on Ginger's side here a while back but he won't be coming back. I mean, he's, he's doing what he loves to do and I want him to do that. But I have a grandson that is just thoroughly, uh, uh, thoroughly enjoys coming to the ranch and digging and, and, and looking at worms. He's eight years old now, he loves to hunt and fish. Uh, and so I want him, even if he chooses another career, which is quite possible because they live in a big urban area, uh, I still want him to be able to come back to the land and enjoy hunting and fishing, but I also want him to choose a good steward of the land. Mm -hmm. And so part of my legacy is not just leaving the land for them, it's leaving the ability to know how to take care of how it. How did you get to where you are? And, and to appreciate that we've rebuilt it for the legacy for the future generations, where it's ours or somebody else's. Yeah. So we're, we're very committed uh, in that, and that's one of the things that we, we try to do is have educational events uh, out, and we're working with the local school now uh, to, to do that this coming summer. Because I think that's something that we, that we really miss is educating our youth uh, about the possibilities. And also, as we rebuild that and regenerate that land, there is that opportunity for him to come back and make a good living beside us. Right. out there. So we're, we're working on that. We're committed that, that we can do this and we will do it. Lauren? January 2009. Had the perfect life. My legacy hit the wall. You think you got it all made. You got the son in place, got two great daughters, and all of a sudden your son gets sick. If it wouldn't have been for that day, you guys probably wouldn't have known me. I was a very close-minded person at that time. What I knew was mine, I was gonna farm the world. 
hit a wall that day, and I guarantee you that or that ER was uh, reinforced. We sat down that day, me and my wife. You know, we decided that uh, we weren't going to let cancer hold us down. I decided that day we're going to share what we know. I'm not a selfish person anymore. You know, we're going to take what we've learned over these years and share it. The scary part is, since I started doing that, the more I share, the more people share. And it's just a vicious cycle. One of the key things through that time was our daughters. They had so much chance to go wrong. If you notice, I don't like talking about myself a lot, but I love helping people. And uh, there's people that stepped in that time to help our kids. When people do that for you, you start understanding that. And, uh, you know, that's been the legacy that really set us on our path we're on now. You know, my long-term goal now is our farm is going to become the Dakota Lakes of Iowa. I don't care about being the biggest farmer in the world, but we've learned and shared enough. We got some things cool going right now. You know what the kids deal? We almost got to the point we had to shut it down because, you know, our kids have moved on, but one of the proudest moments is last two years ago, I guess it is now, the 4-H kids took a vote and they decided they're going to keep it running now. And since then, it started thriving again. On farm, you know, I, I pretty well figured the farm was going to die with me that day. Well, about 2015 at our field day, the youngest, she, she's like, Dad, I'm going to kick your rear out of here someday. Since that time, that's kind of reinvigorated me. That's really started pushing me harder and forward. But that's also why I'm fully prepared to walk away from the farm someday. You know, my dad stepped out of the limelight in his prime, gave me a chance to thrive. You know, when we talk to some of these people, that's the biggest thing I see. A lot of families don't understand that. You know, you've got to have them conversations, fathers and sons. I've, I'm fortunate. You know, me and my dad have been on the same page. But I see a lot of operations, they're bucking heads. One wants the progress, one doesn't want the progress. Now we've fast forwarded to the situation where both daughters are married now. Our son is, he's living in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a brain injury rehab. We, we're getting him the right help now and he's got a future. But our farming operation is going through transition right now. Probably not going the way I planned it. You know, the daughters, they both went and got animal science degrees. Hey, I'll get the heck out of the way. Let's get the livestock there. Well, now they've both grown up another five years. I doubt they'll work. The way it sounds, they don't want livestock. But we're just going to keep rolling with the punches. We'll figure it out. But my biggest challenge right now is today the son-in-law. I think he's starting to get what I'm going towards. But I'm walking a fine line when we're talking to people. Namely, he's going to be my in-laws. They are very good operators, very successful operators. So I do not want to come across that they're doing something wrong. You can't offend them. You know, and that's what I see a lot of social media right now. It scares me. You know, why do we need to divide anybody? You know, look what we have on stage right now. Jimmy's pretty conventional farmer. Rick's organic. Organic part conventional. What I really get out of this is we've both had lots and lots of tragedy and 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 hard times, uh, but neither one of us have failed to give up. Right. We won't be conquered by something uh, that's trying to take you down. 
And I think that's, we see that a lot across the country, that it, it's easy to say, I give up. Uh, this is the end. Uh, I won't be able to do this no more. I can't, it's overwhelming. How did, you know, when the wildfire came, uh, you know, I had to have a serious, serious talk with the banker uh, because it was a, a serious financial blow. And we, we were like Lawrence talking a while ago. We were in a pretty good uh, shape uh, financially. And uh, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, we're going to forge right ahead. I said, you just got to stay with me a little while here in the interim. And uh, uh, now it's a different story. But it's, it's one of them things that that mindset, the, the power of the mind can be on your side or against you. And, and it, it's how you look at life and how you uh, can accept that, 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 you will have trials and you will have trouble uh, to make you stronger. It's not to make you weaker. Right. And uh, that, that's the big difference. Everybody's bringing up Regen Ag right now, and I think a lot of us have talked about what do we define it as. Start thinking what you define it as, because for me, Regen Ag is survival mode. I don't know when I started it, but through our life, that's been how we kept forging ahead. Every time, we hit a wall, we pulled back, we seen more success. You know, I was a strong conventional farmer at one point. You know, I, I could tell, rattle off the fertilizer recipes and this and that. I'm to the point I don't even care about them anymore. It just, you know, I, I took son-in-law out to Rick's a couple years ago, and that, that's when I think he finally started getting it. Go to Rick's place and, what, a six-hour drive home? Less is more. Less is more. That's all he kept saying the whole trip home. I'll tell you what I really like about this this whole this whole national no-till conference that goes on and, and any any other conference it's like the folks that come up here we we have a sense of uh, camaraderie uh, we're building community we're transparent with everything we do uh, we try to help as many people as we possibly can and I mean, to, to, to sit up here and, and pour this out, uh, I, can't, I can't thank you guys enough. Jimmy, there's a question from a, an individual from South Dakota. Mm -hmm. How do you overcome a massive reset wildfire situation? So, you know, understanding the system is, is first and foremost. And so, like our rangeland, I knew it had to have a long period of rest because the fire, to, to this, I'll just tell you a little bit about that day. We were receiving the, the Leopold Award at the state capitol when my phone started ringing uh, and the fire had started. Uh, and so, a little bit later down the road, Under Secretary Bill Northey and my congressman wanted to come after the fire and look. And so the U.S. Forest Service came and gave a debriefing that day because the fire was still going on. Uh, it was just not, not very wild at that time, a few weeks later. Uh, we had 3% relative humidity. We had 50 mile an hour winds with, with two major fronts coming through. So we had wind shifts. So static electricity started this fire? <laughs> the, the first original spark, they, they never could figure out. So probably the, the second the third day, the high lines arced south of my house and started another oh. fire that then joined that fire. And that happened 
for nine days uh, in them extreme temperatures. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was the Forest Service said the fuel load was drier that day than the lumber that you would buy at the lumber yard. And so it was very, very hot, very intense fire. Uh, a lot of my landlords had not managed eastern red cedar, an invasive uh, cedar tree in our area. And them fires are very, very hot. So I knew that we had cooked the biology in, in the top of the profile. I knew the grass was very, very injured. Uh, and then my cropland that, and I told this in the, the breakout session yesterday, I had vowed uh, 10 years ago that my land would never blow again uh, because, you know, my granddad talked about going through the 30s and my dad talked about the 50s where they went two years and didn't raise enough seed to reseed their crop. And so I said, you know, my land's never going to blow again because I'm all about residue and I'm all about managing it, you know, and... Uh, God can humble you. So when, when, when all that residue is gone and you have extreme winds, so I had, had wind erosion for several days. Uh, but while that was going on, I was getting cover crop seed in, shipped in. I was getting the drill ready because I knew if it rained the first uh, moment I could get out there, I wanted to get a cover crop back in. So then the big problem was, okay, you've, you've You've shipped half the cow herd away to save them to grass. Uh, in eastern Oklahoma, a good friend of mine, Tom Cannon, was gracious enough to be able to handle them for me. Uh, but I still I had the other half there. I had to feed them. And so how do you feed them? You know, you want to take some land uh, that you're raising cash crops and forage crops because I knew I had to stay off the grass even if, if it went to rain and we were very, very dry. So we stayed off the rangeland for a full year. And uh, once again, uh, if you read the book, it, you know, we're supposed to set aside uh, every seven years. And so that was my reset. Uh, I stayed off it an entire year. And our, our grass really, really responded. Uh, it, it's, it's tremendous now. We have some of the best rangeland around. Okay, let, uh, me, let me stop you there, Jimmy. Yep. Okay, the fire came, burned it up. You did not go out and plant anything else. You just let the natural habitat come back? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I truly believe that the seed bank is there, which it was. Uh, we had some neighbors that uh, started grazing their grass when it came back, uh, wouldn't let the photosynthesis get to the full potential. Uh, and they were trying to feed their cattle. You know, I'm not the one to judge. I just, I just knew that, that, that it needed a rest. And uh, uh, it was very expensive to do that because sure. I had, had to pay a, a, a year's uh, high dollar rent uh, a long ways from home on half, and then we took land uh, that was normally for cash crops and grew forage to graze and, and, and whatnot. And the pivots were very key uh, in that. And actually, I backed up in organic matter. I uh, pushed the land too hard. Uh, but, but that's part of the ebb and flow that you got to understand that, that Mother Nature does this anyhow. Uh, and, and things are not always in your control, even though you want to. Uh, so while we were giving it a rest, we had 25 miles of fence that were laying flat on the ground. A lot of barbed wire fence in our area. And, and so we spent a long time. Uh, All the posts were burned out. Uh, yeah, everything. It actually, to tell you how dry and how intense the fire was, and I had a landlord, an oil man uh, from Texas came up and 
the post, the corner, wooden corner post burnt to the bottom of the hole. To now, the normally, the so they four they, feet in the ground. Four, it looked like you drilled a, a new post hole perfectly <laughs> to the bottom of the ground. Uh, that's how intense it was. And so uh, we were building fence, and then we have all these skeletons of dead trees standing there. We talked about that at breakfast this morning. Uh, and NRCS come out with a woody breed removal. And so we've been mulching trees uh, since 19. Uh, we're down, we, I think we like about 80 some acres been uh, completely uh, redone mulching all that. I want all the carbon back on the ground because that's part of the reset uh, as well. And where we've started that a few years ago, that grass has really come back now. You overload the system with too much carbon, we know that is not the best thing, but Mother Nature also has this ability to, to cycle that through and, and to come back. So it's, it's been a long journey, uh, and, and, and I've had a good banker and a good wife and family to stand behind us. Thanks to Jimmy Emmons, Lauren Steinlogge, and Rick Clark for this conversation about finding no-till success in the face of adversity. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.